fires didn't start the revolution, but you could say they were the kindling. In October 2019, hundreds fled their homes as wildfires burned through the woodlands of Lebanon's Shouf region. The country suffers fires every year, but these were different. They were huge. Hundreds lost their homes, businesses and their entire lives. And the government? Well, their response was a shambles. Civil defence firefighters, mostly volunteers, took to the hills with ageing trucks and leaking hoses. At least one poorly equipped volunteer died of smoke inhalation and exhaustion. The military used old donated helicopters to scoop water and dump it from the air. But still, the fires raged. And it was volunteers by the hundreds who formed WhatsApp groups and Facebook pages and quickly gathered tons of supplies and opened reception centres to help the victims. Still, the government in Beirut held emergency meetings to come up with plans. Then the news broke that Lebanon had three Sikorsky S-70 specialised firefighting helicopters that were sat rusting at Beirut airport. Donated by local businessmen in 2009, the government simply hadn't allocated any money for their upkeep, and they'd never been used. Anger boiled. In this very story, many saw a microcosm of Lebanon's decades of mismanagement and corruption. Lebanon once again had the tools to help in a crisis, but a lack of planning left many feeling abandoned by the government as people lost homes and their lives. A week later, the protests began, and within two weeks, the government of Saad Hariri had resigned. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking back at a turbulent year in Lebanon, from fires to revolution to a massive explosion. And today, we'll hear from those who have lived through all of this, as they ask, what comes next? On October 17, Lebanon marks a year of protests, political crisis and economic ruin. And today, many Lebanese are looking on bewildered as they see wildfires again burn through the hills and Saad Hariri talking again of returning as Prime Minister. So what, if anything, has changed in the last year? Well, first, let's go back. On October 13th, 2019, the fires started, and at their peak, civil defence said there were more than 100 separate blazes. Investigations into the cause cited hot weather at the end of a long dry summer, exacerbated by hot dry winds. Unable to douse the flames, Hariri reached out to Jordan, Cyprus, Turkey and Greece for help, and countries sent equipment, teams and resources. But the government's slow and limited response, coupled with the news of the unusable helicopters, sowed the seeds of anger that would later lead tens of thousands to take to the streets. The final straw, though, came a week after the worst of the fires. Cabinet met on October 17th to discuss a new national budget. Ministers, faced with the third highest debt-to-GDP ratio in the world, crumbling infrastructure and a power grid that needs $1 to $2 billion a year from the government, despite not giving anything close to 24-hour electricity. Jad Shaban is a professor at the American University of Beirut. It is an insult for a lot of people to keep on paying so much money for services that are dysfunctional, at the same time funding parties and travels and the lavish lifestyle of the corrupt leaders. They needed, ministers said, to hike taxes, raise VAT, and they decided to slap a levy on internet calls. Quickly dubbed the WhatsApp tax, the 20 cents a day charge would raise millions for the government in a country where many use internet calling to get around the astronomically high phone bills in comparison to neighbouring countries. 
hours after Cabinet met, the first protesters took to the streets. Yes, the government had given a perfect headline for newspapers and a rallying cry for the angry by suggesting the WhatsApp tax. But those on the streets were enraged not just by the new measures, but by years of mismanagement and corruption, compounded by the gall of ministers to suggest that ordinary people once again pay more when they're already squeezed by high prices, poor wages and rising unemployment. Enough is enough, honestly. Our, our debt's at $116 billion. Uh, we have 40% of our people between the ages of 20 and 25 that are unemployed. Uh, people my age don't look forward to finding a job here. They look forward to finding a job outside. Remember the massive WhatsApp groups and Facebook pages set up to coordinate the response to the wildfires? Well, they were suddenly alive with the news of the WhatsApp tax. Lebanon already had an economic crisis at this point. It just hadn't hit the international news yet. Inequality was already high, the economy completely stagnant. There were already warnings that the Lebanese lira was going to be devalued or that banks might default. But Lebanon prided itself on being a banking hub for decades. Even at the height of the country's 15-year civil war, the banks had endured. Surely this wouldn't be worse than that fighting? The first protests were small, but police in Beirut quickly charged in firing tear gas and swinging batons. Those there that night recalled the tension and the fear as they ran from officers, darting down side streets and into nearby neighbourhoods. But on the Friday, October 18th, more people returned to downtown Beirut, where the scenes were repeated. And this time, they were broadcast live by Lebanese TV into the homes across the country. Within a day of the infamous cabinet meeting and the first protests, Hariri gave a speech. Political parties have 72 hours to agree long overdue reforms and stop the spread of corruption. Or, he said, I will have something very different to say. It was a warning to his uneasy coalition partners in government, who he had long accused of obstinance rather than those on the streets. He spent the weekend in closed-door talks to draft a new rescue plan and ease anger outside his office at the Grand Sarai in downtown Beirut. By the next morning, a Saturday, the mood outside was different, but it was already clear that something had changed. Mona Harb is the Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Politics at the American University of Beirut. We're talking about citizens who have been taking a lot of pressure, economic, uh, social, uh, for years now, and who are paying taxes, who are contributing to uh, to uh, trying to improve the situation as they should as citizens. And you see a government that does not prioritize at all the public interest. You see a government that prioritizes their own interest and those of their allies and banks and that completely disregards the demands of the ordinary dweller in Lebanon uh, and who, who thinks that, I don't know what they think, actually, I can speak on their behalf, but you, what, I can, what, what I can witness is that the protesters have so much frustration, so much despair, so much uh, anger that it's all coming out now in the streets. There's something cathartic about all this collective gathering. People go down because they just want to be around each other. Hariri said that he told officers to stand back and that peaceful protest was allowed. And this time, it wasn't just the politically active and the young standing up to the police. Families, the elderly, the formerly middle class all took to the streets, and not just in Beirut, but nationwide. At 6pm that night, 
people at protests up and down the country sang the national anthem together. Over the weekend and early through the next week, the protesters spread from Beirut. In North Lebanon's Tripoli, the central square was packed every evening with shouting, singing and slogans. It's there that a viral video showed a DJ playing to a raucous crowd below. With enthusiasm high, few went to work on Monday. There was a national strike. Banks too remained shut, as did universities and schools. By now, the protests were in the small towns and villages of Mount Lebanon, and, crucially, in areas that don't usually see this kind of demonstration. In the south and in the Bekaa, the heartland of Iran-backed Hezbollah and its Shiite ally Amal, as well as in areas that back Hariri. There, people were out in force. The rallies drew in people from all of Lebanon's 18 registered sects, those who traditionally support the parties, and from every walk of life. Many said that for the first time, they really felt Lebanese in a country where people often identify by community, sect and party before nationality. All Lebanese, Lebanese people believe in something and we finally are able, we are able to be united under, under one flag and it's the Lebanese flag basically. Okay? There's no any political flag here. So what was Hariri's new plan? Well, it didn't win anyone over. The WhatsApp tax was officially gone, he promised, and reforms would be made, while the rich would help bail out the government as well as the poor. A week in, President Michel Aoun addressed the nation. But the ageing 85-year-old's stilted performance did nothing to calm the streets. And things became tense again. On several occasions, gangs on mopeds tried to reach central Beirut protesters. Hezbollah and Amal denied that they were involved, but they were widely seen as being party supporters. There were reports of attacks and intimidation taking place in the south, but again, the parties denied any involvement. On October 29th, Hariri resigned, collapsing the government and sparking a political crisis to accompany the exploding economic crisis and the protests. But on the streets, there was celebration as people cheered the announcement of his departure. Over the next several weeks, protesters stayed put. The country was at a standstill. Banks, schools, university and businesses remained shut. The protests didn't cause the economic crisis, but they may have been the trigger for what had been long brewing. The value of the Lebanese lira, officially set by the government at 1,507 to the US dollar, was suddenly trading on the black markets and in exchange houses well below that. Hundreds were laid off, with shops and factories closed. Hariri and his allies abstained when it came to the binding consultations to select a new prime minister, and with the backing of Hezbollah, Amal and its allies, on what is known as the March 8th coalition, Hassan Diab was asked to form a government on December 19th. It took him around a month to finalise his cabinet of independent experts. But nobody really believed they were. Most had been members of various March 8th parties over the years, advised former ministers, or in other capacities close to political movements even if they did have specialisms in their respective portfolios. Let's say what people call the 8th March Alliance uh, have decided to build their own uh, government, which we call a government of one colour, uh, a government that's associated with Iran, a government that's associated with Hezbollah and with Syria. In the last few days, uh, protesters are honestly furious. Uh, it's like a, a couple million people t took, took, their, took themselves and their voices to the street to protest and no one listened to them. Uh, they're still trying to divide the same political parties 
to divide the cabinet seats as if it's a monopoly game that they're splitting between each other. And people have, have lost complete, uh, complete trust uh, in these guys. Diab spent early 2020 trying to make reforms. He hailed his first 100 days as having taken great strides to solving the many crises that had befallen the country. But on the streets, no one really felt any change. Sami Nader is the director of the Levin Institute for Strategic Affairs. A situation like this may face a government on his way out, not on his way in. So this is just to say how much, uh, how big is the gap between uh, the political establishment and the ruling class and the people. Or, or this trick that uh, they come up with did not convince the people. And people are not convinced that this is really a new government or the type of government they are uh, looking for, one that is capable of achieving the reforms and taking the country out of the crisis. What they see in it is the continuation of uh, the same old uh, uh, operating system, the same old where the traditional political parties uh, have uh, the upper hand. The World Bank was already warning that as much as 50% of the country could end up below the poverty line. The effective drop in the value of the lira, the rapidly rising unemployment and the increasing inflation would have wiped away savings almost overnight if the banks were allowing anyone to access their money. In the face of repeated attacks on the protest camps in central Beirut, again by groups that Hezbollah and Amal said were nothing to do with them, many had headed home. There were still rallies, but just not in the same numbers as before. As you can see, those people are not satisfied. And these are the hungry ones. So these are the ones that are going to keep fighting to get their rights. And then the coronavirus pandemic hit. The first case was recorded on February 27th and the first lockdown on March 15th. Cases were initially low and it seemed contained as ministers and health officials warned that the struggling healthcare system simply couldn't afford to be overwhelmed with the infected. When protests resumed in April, again things were different. Demonstrators in Tripoli on April 27th clashed with police and the army, but people were being injured on a scale not seen since the first few days of the protests, and one was killed. At least 40 soldiers were also wounded. Banks were also set alight. The following night, there were more protests in Tripoli, but also in Beirut and the south and other areas. More banks were attacked and smashed. In Sidon, the office of the central bank was set on fire. Still, the banks maintained strict currency controls, stopping people accessing large amounts of their money and limiting withdrawals. Meanwhile, the government continued to discuss the needed reforms, but little seemed to change. Back in 2018, the international community had met in Paris, and agreed $11 billion in loans and grants to fix Lebanon's power problems, build new roads and a transport system to ease congestion, to fix water and sewage networks, and to invest in the country's ageing infrastructure to boost growth. But that aid was contingent on serious reforms, and a signal that the government was serious about addressing the root of the problem that had left the country so dilapidated. Two years on none of those pressing reforms had yet been passed. And in the middle of all this, Lebanon defaulted on its debts with 1.2 billion euro bonds for the first time. 
the attacks on protesters were still ongoing. The country seemed locked in a perpetual cycle. Protesters gathered, clashed with police or political supporters, the government announced more reforms and measures that didn't seem to have any impact, and ultimately things would die down again. But daily life continued to get steadily harder. The value of the lira, remember set by the government at 1,507 to the dollar, was now trading on the black market at 9,000 lira to the dollar. Food was going up in price, as with basics like cooking oil, gas and petrol. And there were shortages of necessities. Many companies reduced pay, and even those who had, before the crisis, been earning a good middle-class wage, able to send their kids to universities and private schools, suddenly found themselves with annual income reduced to a few thousand dollars. And then August 4th happened. At first, there was thick black smoke rising over the port of Beirut, and around the city, people began to film it. Then suddenly, the warehouse exploded. A giant mushroom cloud of orange flame and smoke towered over the city, and a shockwave seemed to shatter every pane of glass in Beirut. In the end, at least 191 people were killed, and over 6,500 wounded, and half the city was damaged. Several of the capital's main hospitals were blown out, even as the wounded began to head there for urgent treatment. The city was coated in soot and glass. Abandoned, destroyed cars lay where they sat in the middle of junctions, and entire houses collapsed. It was the single worst disaster in Lebanese history. The National's correspondent, Sneva Rose, was on the ground in Beirut when it happened. You can see there's glass all over the floor. Um, right in front of me, I think there's a first aid... Uh, someone is being uh, transported by the by an ambulance away from the scene. So this is someone who, an injured person in Jamaze, who's being uh, taken away on a stretcher. Uh, we're not very far from the place of the explosion. I'm just walking through the rocks on the ground. So this car, for example, has been completely smashed by some concrete blocks that were above. People, people are filming and, and crying. Although the investigation is still ongoing into the cause, it's been blamed on thousands of tonnes of ammonium nitrate, a fertiliser and commercial explosive used in mining and demolitions. It seems that thousands of firecrackers stored next to the highly flammable compound at the docks caught fire, possibly because of a welding accident, and that ignited the ammonium nitrate, causing the huge blast. But again, the Lebanese people asked their government, why had no one sounded the alarm about this highly dangerous compound being stored in the heart of the capital, next to a pile of firecrackers? Who had allowed it to be placed there? Who was responsible for leaving it there? And who knew it had been sat there for nearly six years? In the wake of the disaster, the government of Hassan Diab resigned on August 10th. Several MPs also quit Parliament over the blast, and a criminal probe was launched. Since then, there have been several other small explosions and another fire at Beirut port, again blamed on a welding accident. Many residents of the capital say that today they're still feeling shell-shocked. Even months on, the memory of that day rings in their ears. It was, many point out, another preventable tragedy of incompetent governance. Two months later, there's still no new government, 
Politicians are bickering over who gets to appoint ministers, with Hezbollah and Amal saying that they must be allowed to select the finance minister, a key role in overseeing the reconstruction of the capital. French President Emmanuel Macron arrived in the shattered Lebanese capital on August 6. He did what no other Lebanese politician had done, and he walked the streets around the blast site and met the full force of Lebanese anger and pain. He hugged a woman as she wept, and people pleaded with him to make politicians fix it this time. 60,000 people signed a petition to have Lebanon return to French mandate for 10 years to fix the country. But Mr Macron said no. While France would stand beside Lebanon, it was up to them to fix the problem. After meeting with different factions and government officials, Macron left with a deadline. He would be returning on September 1st, and he expected to see a concrete plan of action. But it was after he left that the protests grew again, and Diab's government resigned. Thousands took over the foreign ministry and official offices. Police used live ammunition and buckshot on protesters, wounding hundreds. By the time Macron returned on August 31st, little had been achieved. He said that the Lebanese political leaders had taken part in a collective betrayal in failing to form a new government. He urged parties to swiftly form a new cabinet, pass the needed reforms to show the international community that the Lebanese leaders were up to the task of fixing the country, and tap into the foreign aid. Today, every politician says they support the French initiative and that they will fight for the reforms and against corruption. But, again, little has changed. Parties are still at loggerheads over selecting a new prime minister after Mustafa Adib stepped aside after failing to make headway in cabinet formation. None of the major reforms have yet been made and the Lebanese currency is still practically worthless. Lights still go out and food is simply becoming unaffordable. In the wake of August 4th, many of those who stayed to push for change have simply given up and are looking to emigrate, or have already left. The number of coronavirus cases too is on the rise. In late September, the head of the Lebanese parliament's health committee, Assem Araji, said that the country had lost control and that herd immunity was the only strategy left. Cases have been rising at over a thousand a day, and hundreds have died. So, what's next for Lebanon? Well, the country is facing the worst financial crisis in its history, and this is at the heart of many of the country's problems and many of the protesters' grievances. Talks with the IMF made little progress earlier in July. But since the August 4th explosion, the IMF have stated that they're willing to help Lebanon. We stand ready to redouble our efforts to help Lebanon and the Lebanese people to overcome... But it's still dependent on those wide-ranging economic reforms. So why is it that after a year of protest, a collapsing economy and a huge explosion, Lebanon's leaders still can't agree on a new cabinet, let alone the reforms that have been outlined for the last three years? Well, it's largely to do with the fundamentals of the political system. The 15-year civil war ended in 1990 with no real victor or vanquished. It ended in an uneasy power-sharing agreement where each party, most of them disarmed militias, were allocated ministries and responsibilities of state in coalition governments. Each party, each of which portrays itself as the protector of its sect, then jostles against each other for more resources and more responsibilities. Because with more influential positions in government, the party then has a chance to hand out more favours and more jobs to its constituents. President Aoun was very clear that a core aim of his presidency was about securing the rights of Christians, who he said had been marginalised in government posts. But he's not the only one. 
despite the laws on maintaining a confessional balance being removed for all but the top jobs, the tradition remains, and everything from the appointment of air traffic controllers to assigning ambassadors to making civil defence volunteers a paid post is held up and debated on the merits of fairness to each sect. And so, with this in mind, parties are reluctant to relinquish the means that they have to provide patronage to their sect. And they're also reluctant to reform a state and end the corruption that keeps the constituents reliant on these favours and handouts from the parties. Lebanese politics is, at its core, about sectarianism, clientelism and nepotism. And that, sadly, is a difficult cycle to break, especially when behind it all is the veiled threat of violence. Firstly, there's Hezbollah and its vast arsenal, but most of the parties have groups of supporters willing to fight for the cause if needed. When political relations break down, the security situation breaks down too, and it's then that you see clashes and bombings. So the corruption is endemic, accountability is low, and politicians simply aren't interested in long-term projects that their successors will claim as a win. And left with little are the ordinary people, many of whom have just given up and emigrated to escape the power cuts, the noise, the traffic, the pollution, and the frequent bouts of instability. There is no work, unemployment. Uh, my nieces and my nephews, they finished universities and they couldn't work. And they stayed, one of them stayed in Lebanon five years unemployed till he was lucky that his friend find him something to work abroad in Qatar. The situation is very bad. They are, they are very educated, they are getting education, but they cannot continue in the same country. While, yeah, while the, uh, the children of the politicians, they, having very, very, they are living very luxury life. I saw them in London. I'm James Haynes-Young. This was Beyond the Headlines. Thanks this week to everyone who shared their story from Lebanon and abroad. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you do that, why not leave us a review while you're there? It makes a big difference. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.